Welcome everybody to today's event at ODI. So uh, today, really excited, we're going to get a sneak preview, although I've been told it's a, a, a very uh, small preview, into CDC's new strategic impact objectives, which uh, will be valid for the next five years, I think starting in, in 2022. But also we're going to hear from an incredible panel of leading experts uh, and industry leaders, I think, on the on the resonance of, of these uh, objectives uh, from the country kind of perspective, so on the ground, but also I'm hoping to be able to create some lively discussion perhaps on some of the, maybe some of the opportunities, but also some of the challenges within these tensions and, and what CDC may be up against, if you like, in achieving those in the next five years. So my name's Sam Attridge. I'm a senior research fellow here at ODI, and I spend all my life when I'm at work uh, investigating and, and understanding the operations of, of DFIs. Um, and I'm going to be your chair today. So I think I'll, I'm going to be quick because there's not a lot of time. So there's no doubt, I think, that CDC is actually one of the world's leading and most respected bilateral DFIs. And it's especially valued for its uniqueness vis-a-vis -vis other DFIs uh, in terms of its geographic uh, kind of focus um, in Asia, South Asia and Africa, but also most notably for its deployment of, of equity capital. So it's quite a unique, special institution, and I think we should be proud of it here in, in the UK. It's also been on quite a significant journey, I would say, since 2012. And we've seen quite a transformation in, in CDC, not only in terms of its investment approach, but it's also seen quite a significant growth in the size of its portfolio, thanks to kind of uh, the UK government's increased capitalization of it. But also, and why we're here today, an increasing focus on its development impact. Um, and I think these new objectives, you know, signal that this is a continuation of, of that journey and what we can expect in the next five years. Um, the theory and thinking behind these objectives, Paddy's published a paper, he can publicize that, um, which has led CDC to, to develop these objectives is, is published. And I think that the, the thinking behind it is relatively, I think, uh, not controversial. And I think kind of um, economics kind of room 101. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading the paper that's been published is that actually, if you stand back and look at DFI investment patterns, on the whole, they don't necessarily tally, I think, with, with, with the paper and, and some of the thinking outlined in, in that paper. So I found that quite curious. Um, and I think that's why these new objectives are so interesting, Paddy, because not only I think will the uh, pursuit of them be quite challenging, but I think they're going to necessitate quite a change in, in the portfolio composition and how CDC goes about investing, but also how we think and measure impact, you know, you were talking in the paper about spillover effects and transformative effect, I think has some significant implications for how we go about measuring and managing that. Anyway, um, enough from me. We have a wonderful panel, a distinguished panel. Um, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to uh, do a very short introduction, which won't do their impressive biographies that they sent through justice. So please accept my, my apologies. Uh, so to my right, we, I'm delighted to, mo to, to welcome Mohan Vivekanandan, I hope I got that right, who's the Group Executive Director of the Development of Origination and Coverage at the Development Bank of South Africa, which focuses on uh, sustainable infrastructure development and financing across the 
African continent. Mohan's also a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Futures Council on SDG Investment and the OECD-led Fast Infra Initiative. Um, joining us online, maybe uh, Namita, you could give us a wave. We have Namita Vikas, uh, who's sitting in India. She is the founder and managing director of Uptas ESG, which is a global expert advisory firm on sustainable finance and ESG investing. And Namita is a, is a senior business leader and, and banker with over 30 years experience. We were just hearing she played a significant role, I think lead role in India's, the issuance of India's first green bond back in 2015 and has an, a long list of impressive accolades, uh, including being ranked as one of the leading women in business sustainability by the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. So we're delighted to have you with us, uh, Namita. And uh, we also welcome Mavis. Mavis, if you could give us a wave. We have Mavis Awusu Jamfi, who is the Executive Vice President at the African Centre for Economic Transformation, which is an African, a leading global, um, sorry, a leading African uh, think tank, economic think tank, who focus a lot of their research on uh, sustainable development and inclusive growth uh, in Africa. Um, prior to that position, Mavis was the director of, of uh, investment um, at the Power of Nutrition initiative. Her other roles, uh, she spent quite a long time, I believe, at uh, the UK's Department for International Development, now the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, and has also been director of programme policy for quality at Save the Children UK. And she did spend 12 years at DFID, and uh, I think her last position there was actually as the deputy director and head of private sector development. So we have a, an excellent, well-qualified panel, I think, to kind of scrutinize Paddy today. Um, okay, so as well as our small audience in the room, it's actually a real delight to, to be chairing an event and see people in person. Uh, we also have a large, over 300 registered online. So hello, everybody. We have everyone from all corners of the globe joining us today. Hello, welcome. Um, please do ask questions. So in the audience, just raise your hands. Um, online, there's a little box, I think, underneath the video stream. Please type in your questions. Uh, if, you, if you'd like to give us your name and affiliation, and I will do my best to direct the questions to the panel. So anyway, over to you, Paddy. Thanks very much, Sam. And uh, hello, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, as Sam mentioned, uh, a real novelty to be doing uh, this in person. Um, here we go on the slides. So um, what I'm going to do today is present a extremely compressed version of a paper called The Economics of Development Finance, uh, which is going to explain some of the thinking behind uh, the development impact objectives that CDC is going to set itself uh, for the next five year period. I'm sorry to say I won't be able to comment uh, on much else of what's in the forthcoming strategy. You shall have to wait for the official launch, which I think is going to be in December political wins permitting. So I've been allotted 15 minutes, so I'm really going to rattle through this presentation, but hopefully it'll whet your appetite and you can go and read the paper, which you can find online. So what's the purpose of this paper? So I'm really trying for simplicity and clarity here. Um, strategy, I was reading some strategy professors and they say that strategies often fail because um, they don't really ever clearly say what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Um, and it's very easy for an organization like CDC, which has a very open-ended mission of uh, helping solve uh, 
global development challenges, I think is the phrase, um, to end up with a very long list of desirable things that we want to do without a clear articulation of what our priorities are and hence what our performance should be judged against. Uh, so what I'm, much of what I'm going to say here, I think, as Sam said already, is not really very novel. It's some um, pretty standard economics, but uh, that's deliberate. Um, across CDC, there, there's mountains of guidance papers and fine-grained sector strategies which dig into complexity. But here I'm trying to cut through complexity and try to place some points on our compass, um, so to speak. Uh, what we want to get to in the end is uh, a clear idea of what a high-impact and a low-impact investment looks like. But we didn't want to just sort of hand people what we thought were the answers uh, without explaining where it came from. So what we've tried to do in this paper is, is start from the kind of ground up uh, and, and get to these answers that way. So <clears throat> forgive a bit of economics jargon, but a, a strategy is, is a constrained maximization problem. It has two parts. Uh, first, we, we want to know what's desirable, and then we can start thinking about what is possible. Uh, what it is realistic to expect uh, once we take constraints into account uh, requires knowledge about our markets and our capabilities and our resources. And the strategy that we will launch uh, later this year will reflect all that. But today, I'm just going to be talking about the first part, which is the what is desirable part. So um, <clears throat> that's my preamble out of the way. Um, <clears throat> this slide has uh, covers what I'm planning to talk about for the rest of this uh, session. So uh, let's start with what is development and what has private sector investment got to do with it? So I would say that development um, is about improving lives and protecting the planet uh, or words to that effect. Now, um, a person's quality of life is about all sorts of things, dignity, rights, freedoms, but um, we are investors and that means our domain is the economy. And that means that's largely about uh, people's material standard of well-being although I, I would add that kind of someone's experience at work is um, very important too. Now, in the language of economics, reducing poverty is the same thing as increasing consumption. Uh, those statistics that we all uh, look at on extreme poverty and poverty levels, that data is all about estimated levels of daily consumption. It's not about what we think of as consumer goods in rich countries. It's about food and housing and healthcare and all the components of a, of a, a decent standard of living. So lots of people will not be able to consume at a high level unless the economy can produce uh, lots of consumption goods and services per person. So an unproductive uh, economy is a poor economy. Those are two sides of the same coin. Most people get their income from working. Uh, so their level of consumption is going to be set by their real income. That's their nominal wage in whatever currency uh, relative to the prices of things they want to buy. So from an individual's perspective, you can get better off in two ways. Either your individual income increases because you've got a better job, perhaps, or because the prices that you face fall relative to your income. And that can happen when the economy that you live in has got more productive uh, and perhaps more competitive. So when a DFI makes an investment, we do that to raise productivity. And the benefits of doing that can go in two directions, to the firm where it is shared between workers and investors and to the customer that enjoys a wider range of better products at lower prices, and economists call that consumer surplus. Investments have positive and negative effects on the productivity of other firms. Some they're going to help, others they might put out of business. So to size up the impact of an investment, you really want to add up the net change in the uh, incomes of workers and customers across the economy. Now, if you've done that, 
and you set that against the cost of the investment, you would have the beginnings of an impact return on investment calculation. So that's the first thing we do when we're trying to conceptualize what the impact of an investment is. But the second thing you'd want to do is you'd want to ask who benefits from those changes and then weight those benefits accordingly. A dollar of uh, higher income is worth more to a poor person than to a rich person. And anybody out there that's taken some economics classes will recognize that as the diminishing marginal utility of consumption. So quite how quickly um, the benefits of higher consumption on human welfare fall as you get richer is an answer without a sort of definitive, sorry, it's a question without a sort of definitive answer. But if you look in, for instance, the UK's cost benefit analysis handbook, uh, you will see an assumption that the impact on welfare doubles each time initial income halves. So that means that increasing someone's consumption from $2 to $3 a day has the same impact on sort of human well-being as increasing it from four to six or from 10 to 15. So if you think about that, it's very powerful. You would be doubling the impact of a dollar many times as you move from the richest to the poorest people in a society. And because our mission is to improve people's lives, then that means that the impact return on our investments uh, judged against that objective is very influenced by, by who's benefiting from them. So I'm gonna turn on to the protecting planet side of the problem here. So the word sustainable means different things to different people, but uh, in economics, it means that our standard of living does not fall over the long run, which is going to do if we wreck the planet, um, especially if you actually take the natural world to be part of our standard of living. So here we are investing in productivity to support a higher level of consumption for all, but climate change and the depletion of natural capital is negative investment, it's destruction. So you probably don't really need any more dire predictions about uh, uh, the effects of climate change. I know I don't, but here you go anyway. Um, one, some estimates say that um, unabated climate change would reduce uh, GDP by 75% in the regions of the world where CDC uh, invests by the end of the century, which depending on what you assume about how fast growth would have been in the absence of climate change means that these regions of the world could end up worse off at the end of the century than they are now. So what that means for DFIs is that any investment that helps shift the economy onto a sustainable footing has a big impact on our development mission. Any investment that looks good, both from what you might call a human development point of view in the short run, job creation, price reductions, but also looks makes a difference from an environmental point of view, that's like a win-win for us, uh, a double whammy. Okay, so oh, that was super quick. There's much more in the paper, but putting all this together, we kind of think that uh, three things are needed from investment from the point of view of development. Uh, we need investments so that uh, economies can grow to provide a decent standard of living uh, and create jobs for all. Uh, we need investments to uh, transform economic activity so it's environmentally sustainable. And we need investments that are gonna share the benefits of these productivity improvements across all sections of society. And this very simple basic uh, uh, kind of conclusion is where our three strategic development objectives come from. So those objectives are to make investments that are productive, sustainable, and inclusive. And um, of course, what, those are very kind of hard to disagree with, are high-level words. So what's really going to matter is how we operationalize those things. And that's the stuff that I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to talk about until we, we get to the actual strategy launch. Um, but what I do hope to end up with is describing what we think a high-impact investment looks like, uh, seen in this way. Uh, and, and the kind of things that we are going to be prioritizing 
uh, in our new strategy. But before I get there, we've got to understand why we need DFIs. And then we put those things together and that's what tells us where we can have the most impact. Okay, so a really obvious place to start is the fact that many businesses in Africa and Asia cannot always obtain the finance that they need on reasonable terms. That means that socially beneficial investments aren't happening. So a very simple reason for the existence of DFIs is to fill financing gaps. Um, we're not going to be able to fill financing gaps from our own balance sheets. Uh, we are small and the problem is large. So um, whilst there are important worthwhile projects that can't get the money they need and we can have a very direct impact in that way, the kind of bigger potential is to do something at the system level, um, change how the financial sector works and maybe also mobilize um, more investments beyond our balance sheets. We need public interventions in private markets because of what economists like to call market failures. Uh, and that means what's best for profit is not always what's best for society. So you're all doubtless familiar with the idea of a negative externality. So uh, because the prices of coal or petrol didn't reflect the damage that was done by them, we burnt too much of them and we didn't put enough effort into developing alternatives. There are also positive externalities. So these are benefits that are enjoyed by society but are not uh, reflected in the private financial returns. So for instance, a society benefits when there are more and better jobs uh, around, but firms don't take that into account when they're making hiring decisions. And there are also social benefits from learning from innovation and experimentation. And these are far larger than the private returns. When economists try to measure these things, they routinely come up with estimates of social returns that are five or 10 times higher than the private returns. So regulations, taxes and subsidies are the main tools that a government might have to correct for these differences between private uh, and social returns. But even wealthy countries, uh, not the UK so far, but uh, many others, uh, with lots of fiscal capacity to afford subsidies and powerful institutions to enforce policies, still see the need for development finance institutions to uh, make some investments happen that wouldn't otherwise. And um, governments in Africa and South Asia, which might have a bit less fiscal power, and maybe um, it might be harder to enforce uh, regulations, uh, the need for DFIs to find investments with large social benefits is, is even greater. We also need DFIs to push markets in more equitable directions. Markets are an engine of prosperity, but they go where there is money to be made, and you don't get awarded with extra profits from investments uh, in poor countries or which directly benefit uh, poor people. So um, DFIs can have different priorities from uh, commercial investors and place a premium on, uh, on investments that do that. Uh, a big part of tackling inequality is competition. When firms compete for workers and customers, wages go up and prices go down. When firms dominate their markets, they can hold wages down and prices up. Now, if we were purely commercial investors, we would love that. Uh, market power is where super profits come from. It's how Warren Buffett uh, made his billions, creating little monopolies. Um, but because we're a DFI, we want to see more competition and not less. So we have to stay away from making powerful incumbents uh, more powerful. Right. So that has covered uh, very quickly what we need investments for and why we need DFIs to intervene. Um, putting these together will give us like the, the how what what does high impact look like so i'm gonna now i'm gonna run through our three objectives and try and pick out what a high impact investment looks like but i want to emphasize before i do that these three words these are the dimensions along which we measure the impact of every investment 
Uh, it's not a matter of saying that this type of investment is productive, this type of investment is sustainable, although, of course, some will be stronger in some dimensions uh, than the other. So starting with productivity, where can we find the really big social returns uh, on this score? Well, the direct impact of uh, higher productivity on workers and customers can be large and important, but as a rule, impact at scale is going to come from investments that affect many other firms. So for instance, cheaper, more reliable internet access will result in lots of firms starting to do things that they couldn't do before and investments taking place across the economy. And there's very high quality empirical evidence that reducing the price, increasing the quality and availability of what we call ec economic enablers, such as finance, connectivity, electricity, fertilizer, cement, and so on, uh, can make a big difference to overall productivity in the economy and therefore into wages and prices. So in general, the question that CDC will be asking ourselves here is, is there a plausible sequence of events from this investment that will result in many other firms um, in turn making investments and raising their productivity? And broadly speaking, there are two ways of doing that. One is tangible, one is intangible. On the tangible side, we are talking about spillovers in production networks. So these are firms that make, th make things that other firms um, use. And when there are uh, complementarities, uh, then the productivity in these networks and the productivity of some firms depends positively on the productivity of other firms. Economists sometimes talk about a binding constraint. And the idea there is that there are some things that at a particular point in time and in a particular place are really holding um, growth back. So that's what we are trying to focus on. I've mentioned things like power and fertilizer, but we do want to think a little bit more broadly. Finance is, of course, itself a input into production in a sense. And I also want to highlight uh, the um, tradable sector and exports, which uh, produce foreign exchange earnings, which can be a constraint on growth too. On the intangible side, we're looking at knowledge creation and we're looking at investments that uh, generate a competitive response. Uh, we call this catalyzing markets. So that's the kind of thing that we're going to be prioritizing uh, there. Hope I'm all right for time. Um, on the sustainability side, Again, it's a similar story. I mean, we can get uh, have a considerable impact directly on greenhouse gas emissions. We can get big numbers um, by helping the largest carbon intensive economies in the regions where we invest become lower emitters. But again, we might have a greater impact from investments that have these spillover effects. Um, as a rule, we might make more of a difference by doing things that get a ball rolling rather than pushing on a ball that already has momentum. That might mean that we have to go into countries where the renewable sector is still immature. And then as the renewable sector matures, we've got to be thinking about where we can push back the next frontiers of decarbonization. So that is uh, industrial heat, sustainable agriculture, cooling, water. There are whole parts of the economy that have barely begun to uh, decarbonize and become more resilient. In general, because there is still so much to learn about how to green the economy, then there is a great need for experimentation to find out what works. So the positive spillovers from new green business models and investments um, have the potential to be very large indeed. So last but not least, uh, being inclusive. Now, um, our shareholder, the FCDO, is delighted when we are happy to reach uh, low income, the lowest uh, income sections of the population in an efficient way. But they have better instruments for targeting extreme poverty uh, than us. What they really want from us is to make these investments that um, advance structural change, and they will often have a more broad-based impact. 
uh, across society. That said, uh, when we can find investments that uh, directly reach uh, the lowest income sections of society, they are a very high priority for us uh, because they are high income. So to do that, we will be looking for investments that either create better jobs or are going to put in people from the bottom of the income distribution at scale or create opportunities for marginalized sections of society, including women, of course, or which reduce the prices of things that uh, people buy. Uh, in East Asia, poverty reduction was helped by very large employers that could hire and train lots of low or semi-skilled workers. There are perhaps fewer such opportunities around today, but uh, where we can find them, they are high impact. Uh, increasingly, opportunities like that will be in the services sector rather than manufacturing. And then um, agriculture. So something like 80% of the people who live in extreme poverty are living in rural areas. And the evidence is pretty clear that poverty, sorry, productivity improvements in agriculture that reach a large number of farmers are where the most pro-poor investments can be found, at least in the short run. Uh, in the long run, a country will be unlikely to move from poverty to prosperity through agricultural improvements alone. And then finally, there are millions of people working in the informal sector in uh, urban areas on very low and precarious livelihoods. So anything we can do to bring higher and more stable incomes to that segment of the population is a priority. The digital economy offers great promise here, creating new opportunities to reach people that couldn't be reached. But there are also risks. Uh, the gig economy is not necessarily uh, a wholly good thing. That was very quick. Did I get through <laughs> it on time? Uh, I'm done. Yes, yes, so thank you very great. much, everybody, for listening. I, I look forward to hearing from our discussants and questions. Thanks. Thanks, Paddy. A lot, a lot to cover, and I would direct everyone to have a look at, at the paper. Um, there's a lot of content, uh, content there. But I think it's good to see kind of uh, CDC narrowing down where it thinks along these kind of dimensions, it thinks uh, its investment will have its, the greatest impact. So Mohan, I'm going to talk to you about the productivity uh, objective um, that Paddy's outlined. So he's outlined kind of three areas where he thinks DFI can have the most impact in terms of improving or raising productivity. And you sit in you sit in Africa. You work for the Development Bank of South, South Africa. So we're interested in your experience and perspective, I guess, from an African perspective. But how well do these kind of specific focus areas resonate with countries' needs? And are these the areas where you think, from your experience, DFIs can have the most impact in terms of kind of productivity and spillover effects? Sure. Thank you very much, and thanks for the, the invitation as well. Um, just a quick background. The DBSA, we are a South African national development bank based out of Johannesburg. And what we do is we focus around sustainable infrastructure projects, both in South Africa and the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. So um, we're part of a, uh, let's say, a universe of, of different development finance institutions in Africa. So there are others that, uh, for instance, the Industrial Development Corporation that focuses more on you know, industrial investments, mining, um, factories, that, that type of thing. There's a, another institution, the Land Bank, that focuses on primary agriculture, agro-processing activities as well. So uh, I suppose, you know, when I'm speaking, it, it'll be focused a lot from an infrastructure perspective. And, and in that sense, you know, I think the things that Patty was speaking about uh, are, are really, um, I think, quite spot on, on on the productivity side. Because what we look for is, you know, we look at infrastructure in two ways. One, on the economic side, you know, having you know, good quality infrastructure in place, 
at affordable prices is, is very important for economies uh, in, in South Africa and the rest of the region to be able to grow, you know, to become productive, to, to create jobs uh, and, and, you know, to allow for trade. And then on the other side, you know, there are certain sectors of infrastructure that we invest around education, in healthcare, in social housing that also, you know, improve the quality of life of, of people in the continent as well. But certainly, you know, the economic infrastructure that we focus on, you know, whether it be in, in the power sector, transport and logistics, uh, in, in telecoms and ICT investments, um, and even to a degree around water, um, especially bulk water, you know, those are all absolutely crucial for um, getting the economies growing. Um, and as Pat, you know, rightfully, you know, stated, if you can't get the economies of these countries to grow, then, you know, you're not going to be able to, you know, have more consumption for the people of the continent. Um, and, 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 you know, we know that the levels of poverty, you know, have not gone down anywhere near as much within Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, as, you know, we'd like to have seen, you know, certainly compared to, to other parts of the world. So I think that focus on productivity, you know, let's call it productive sectors, is, is, is really, really critical. And it aligns a lot with what the, the DBSA focuses on. Um, you know, so the way we think about it is to say, you know, we want to focus on sustainable infrastructure. And, and that has elements of, you know, the sustainability and the inclusivity bits. Um, but it's also the first part, because if the infrastructure isn't economically viable, then, you know, it's almost pointless in the sense, you know, if you over, you know, if you overspend on power, then the cost of that power is going to be such that industry can't, you know, affordably pay for it and still produce what they need to produce, as an example. Um, and, and similarly, you know, households won't be, except for a few at the top, won't really be able to afford that power either, you know, and that's one, you know, similarly, you know, it could be, uh, you know, so you have to look at logistics as a chain and understand how do we deliver, you know, productive logistics so that, you know, it could be shipping, you know, mining output through, you know, through railways, you know, to the ports and getting them out, but it could also be how you promote trade. Uh, you know, one of the things we're looking at in South Africa is how do you connect the industrial heartland of South Africa around Johannesburg through an efficient transport network into the heart of, you know, of Africa, through Southern Africa into the Great Lakes region so that uh, exporters and industry in South Africa is competitive vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, um, other, others who would, let's say, land, you know, goods into some of the ports in East Africa and then ship them through to the market. So, um, you know, that element of productivity is, is very, very important. Um, I think a second part of the question then was around what are the, the challenges and opportunities we see? And, and I suppose I'll speak a little bit narrowly from the, the infrastructure space because, you know, that's where we operate in. Um, you know, what is interesting is on the one hand, you know, I think it's clearly understood the scale of the investment that's needed in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, in infrastructure alone, you know, the, the, the need for investments is in the region of about $150 billion a year. That's about 5 to 6% of the GDP of the continent. Um, you know, roughly, I think about 70, maybe 80 to $90 billion is being invested. So it's still a gap, you know, in, the, in that range. But if you think about other SDGs, you know, sustainable development goals, you know, then the level of investment is over a trillion dollars a year, which is a significant portion of the GDP. So on the one hand, you know, we have a lot of investments that need to be made. Um, and, you know, what's also interesting is, you know, as you know, you know, especially sitting here, there's significant pools of capital 
that are looking for decent yield. You know, certainly, um, you know, in parts of continental Europe, you know, for 10-year bonds, government bonds, you're, you're earning negative yields. You know, if, for instance, if you're buying German, uh, German bonds, as an example, here, it's a little bit slightly positive, but it's not nowhere near enough to pay for, for you know, retirees to pay for their pensions and such. So there's a search for yield. Um, and the good news is there's decent yield to be made in African infrastructure. And so, in fact, the reason I'm here uh, for this week is there's a, a, a conference called the Africa Energy Forum, you know, that's taking place here in London. I guess it's taking place here instead of in Africa because, you know, a lot of the money is here uh, and, and you have to go where the money is. Um, but the good news is, so the money is there and the need is there. But the challenge is the projects that are viable and are ready for investments are not there. Um, and, and so that's something, and I think this speaks to some of the elements about the role of a DFI that Patty was speaking to. That's something that we've identified as the DBSA that we need to step into. So as an example, what we found is that the reason is that ultimately the regulatory and institutional framework that's needed to bring in these investments isn't there. Um, and once that's set up, then significant amounts of private capital flows in. So, you know, Patty's again absolutely right that, you know, our balance sheets as DFIs and as, uh, let's say, obviously, you know, official development assistance, ODA, is, is simply not enough, right? That, I think the ODA is about $130 billion. You know, to give you an idea, the DBSA's balance sheet is about $7 billion. We invest about a billion dollars a year I mean, and in infrastructure. Meanwhile, you know, we spoke about total requirements of over $150 billion. So, you know, we have to be reliant on... Uh, on private capital to solve for this. But we have to create that, we meaning African governments and the donor and DFI community have to work together to create that investable framework that allows that capital to flow through. Because if, effectively it is a sort of a public good, you know, and, and therefore an individual private entity isn't necessarily gonna make that kind of investment. Um, I'd, I'd recently uh, published an, a, a paper with the World Economic Forum on, on that Global Futures Council uh, with, uh, with some other writers, including a gentleman who ran the, the Triple P program in Colombia for the roads program. And, and I gave examples from the DBSA's experience from the renewable energy program in South Africa. In both of those, we made significant investments upfront, working with government, putting in the legislative, the procurement frameworks, those types of elements, which then has enabled significant amount of private capital to flow through. So I think that's another example of the kind of investments that, uh, that DFIs can be making that allows for productive investment to come through. Um, so, you know, you know, those are those are some of the, the types of work we're doing. Obviously, we'll then also step in because another gap, so beyond the dearth of projects, is then around risk capital, and which is one of the, the things that so there's a lot of capital, but generally, you know, a lot of it is on the debt side and senior debt side. There's a little bit, there's less on equity. Um, and so the role that the, the CDC is playing in providing equity capital for these kinds of investments is also quite crucial. Um, and then I guess the last issue is just around, well, it's not the only one, but there's a significant issue around just making sure it's affordable and, and therefore you have the off takers that have the ability to pay for this. And, and here the challenge is, you know, based on the tax base, the size of the economies, you know, a lot of African governments and, and utilities um, just don't have the ability to afford a lot of the infrastructure. So you're kind of building, you know, slowly grow the economy that adds to the GDP, it adds to the tax base, and then you can build some more and, and, and sort of continue to follow that kind of a path. So, so I, I'd say those are some of the challenges that, that need to be worked on. 
Great, thank you. Thank you, Mohan. Um, so I think you've highlighted, I think, the, the importance of infrastructure, but also there's quite a lot of interdependence between these objectives and some of the challenges. And if we have time, I know, Paddy, you can't talk about the kind of how, but, you know, um, Mohan's highlighted this issue, I think, around mobilisation and the constraints of DFI balance sheets in, in light of the need. But also, I think this issue around the importance of the enabling environment and, I guess, how DFIs then work to kind of build that enabling environment to incentivize investment, especially in, in renewable energy. And of course, a big issue on risk capital and CDC is uh, different from many DFIs that does provide um, equity uh, capital more so than many other DFIs. So I'm gonna to talk to uh, Namita next. Uh, so Namita, I'd like to speak to you based on your expertise in, in uh, kind of sustainable finance. Um, again, from your kind of um, experience and perspective, these kind of three areas that Paddy outlined on, on sustainability and what a, uh, the most impactful investment might look like, um, how does that resonate you know, with countries in South Asia and, and your kind of experience in, in this area? Are these the areas where DFIs need to be investing? Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Samantha, and thanks a lot for inviting me here. It's indeed a pleasure. So, uh, you know, like Paddy and Mohan, uh, you know, put forward their points, I think, you know, we are aware that DFIs that operate um, uh, similarly to commercial banks, but slightly differently. And since their mandate or mission is more focused on the objectives of sustainable development, they also, in a way, provide a kind of a cyclical effect or an impact and the interlinkages between developmental parameters and the capital that is provided, you know. So, you know, energy access resulting in livelihood security, education, better healthcare. And they do have the appetite to take on more risk and have longer term perspective on uh, project returns and developmental impact. So this is really the positive uh, side. And I think this is really the key to scaling commercial capital uh, which focuses on climate or sustainable projects and that is where we need more and more DFIs like CDCs and others uh, to step in where investments just don't deliver on the highest sustainability impact but also um, you know provide for market linked performance because as Paddy also mentioned that private sector participants, private sector financiers would look at um, profits and uh, DFIs really are in the position to provide that additionality um, to the private sector. So, you know, if you look at, for example, uh, within the global south, uh, the gap SDG funding requirement is of trillions. We heard uh, Mohan speak about it and we know uh, that there is rapid work that is happening on, say, energy demand across South Asia. But, you know, there are challenges and these are to be understood and DFIs understand this very well. And these need to be then connected with that additionality part that, that I'm really talking about. You know, so like projects which are energy projects which are linked to access or transition linkages with, you know, inadequate production or transmission uh, infrastructure, theft and safety of public goods, failure uh, of policies or um, even currency risks and high uh, hedging costs. I think these are uh, limitations why projects like these don't take off, right? And all this coupled with, again, private sector's apprehension on high risks of lending to communities or projects, and especially the one that, uh, you know, Paddy mentioned where you go into, uh, you know, underserved markets. I think then there is a mismatch of uh, uh, expectations about, you know, acceptable and realistic returns on investment. So I think uh, the, the big role here is to meet 
the requisite demands and we heard about how you know risk mitigation mechanisms uh, that have been brought out by dfis is really uh, helping uh, you know uh, helping uh, bridge that uh, capital uh, gap and you know one other priority area uh, and um, i think this is this is very important here is how do we help leverage private investments to address specific challenges so just take india for example energy solutions last mile mile delivery is a test and as geographic areas are either underserved or beyond the reach of the grid then there are communities with low income there is high vulnerability scarcity of resources and um, you know uh, this also leads to uh, low levels of energy consumption and factors that are really impossible for commercial capital to enter now on the other side if you look at india's cop 26 commitments 50% renewable energy generation by 2030 and this is a huge market opportunity for for dfis to look at how do you bundle products and uh, and bundle products along with private sector lenders i think that is a, a very very important aspect to be able to create uh, that uh, that real impact and then you know then there's one other thing that you know paddy mentioned which i found very interesting in fixing the weak links and i had thought about a point here which was about you know how cdc like dfis can play the key role of an aggregator given uh, you know its objectives bringing together i mean in case of energy clean energy for example bringing together energy end users the energy providers and the ecosystem developers all who are a cog in the energy delivery wheel and all of these have their own motivations and own uh priorities right i mean uh, each one comes with that own priority so how do you bring together how do you fund the capacity building training how do you intervene policies at different country levels i think that is very 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 critical and one final point on you know because uh, you know there is also this whole uh, opportunity that is coming from hard to decarbonize sectors right i think the region as a whole is home to some of the world's largest emitters as we know and we've heard how much or uh, i mean a, a number of times that the global efforts to fight climate change really depend on asian countries cutting their reliance on coal or you know moving towards a low carbon uh, production now towards this i think you know transition and the whole transition finance and facilitating that becomes very very important from dfi's perspective so i hope in um, in cdc strategy that uh, will be unfolded or un, uh, will be revealed uh, there is capital moving towards uh, these kind of uh, mechanisms and i think those are the areas that really uh, need to be uh, need to be fueled if i may say over to you sam thank you namita and so do you see any particular kind of uh, opportunities or challenges um in the kind of approach of cdc or the sectors that they've identified or parties identified uh, yeah so like like you know i was i was mentioning that there is um, you know cop 26 has served a lot of buzz and action from governments and a vigor uh, that we've seen with all the pledges uh, uh, that have that have been brought out but i think the proof of the pudding is to see how all these targets are actually met all conditional unconditional uh, and all commitments right so that is that's really how how we uh, how we look at it now you know for example over the last 4 years cdc has invested over a billion dollars uh, in climate finance across 
Africa and South Asia. Uh, it, it has made recent commitments to uh, invest a billion dollars in climate funding in India that's building upon its already existing $1.99 billion portfolio. Very rightly, Mohan mentioned, while debt capital is available, I think equity is much harder. And we've seen how with uh, one of the large banks uh, fund, uh, CDC is looking at mobilizing equity and accelerating climate investments in the in the country. I think you know uh, by contributing to these kind of uh, these kind of developmental uh, agenda in countries, particularly, would be able to create um, a larger footprint. I think one very important point here is uh, you know uh, DFIs like the CDC lead the pack. I mean we've seen how uh, IFC, EIB, they all have, including CDC, have the wherewithal to channel funding of scale and leave a greater footprint uh, in, in the project that they, they, that they have been working on, right? And especially in emerging markets, what we've seen is the local DFIs are lagging. And this is on the back of challenges like lack of understanding of sectoral risks or uh, a need for stronger balance sheets or capital, uh, project execution delays, inability to obtain resources at competitive prices and attracting talent because they are disadvantaged at um, you know absolute remuneration levels, right? So I think you know with all this, there is an opportunity for um, organizations like CDC uh, to be able to work with the local DFIs uh, so that then that alpha gets really created in the areas uh, that he has mentioned as priorities, right? I think I think that would be a very important aspect to look at. So, you know, um, looking at a good investment strategy, which is already there, and how do CDC enables the local DFIs, and how how does the, how do they get folded into the larger objective of using scarce public capital to catalyze the rising of multiple private capital or addressing the perceived risks uh, which serve as uh, uh, you know um, barriers for private sector to entry, weaving in instruments like blended ca capital, first loss guarantees, partial guarantees, or cash covers. I think these are very very uh, important aspects to address the vulnerabilities that sit within and would then provide or create ample head growth, uh, I mean, headroom for growth and delivery uh, to, to be able to create the necessary impact. One other thing I wanted to, um, you know, one other thing, which is more of a question, but it is also something that I wanted to put forth here that, you know, impact return on investment. We saw social return on investment uh, way back uh, in the 2016, 2015, 2016, uh, taking, uh, evolving. But impact return on investment uh, that uh, Paddy mentioned about, this is a very important aspect of looking at uh, investments. And, uh, where, how would we evolve with the frameworks or the formulas to be able to calculate that? I think that would be uh, that would be very very important because that should link to also measuring the risks and the returns, um, uh, which include the profitability that you know um, investors or you know uh, financial institutions who would want to partner would would really would really look at. So I would I would um, yeah stop there. Uh, and uh, over to you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Namita. Um, in the interest of time, I won't uh, attempt to summarise, but I think, again, you know, I've picked up some some themes coming through. Some of it's on the how. Uh, I think the um, this issue around kind of bridging and I think kind of engaging with the private sector, scale and, and mobilisation, high-risk capital. But also, I think you were talking about ways of working with local DFI, so ways of working in terms of how to 
how to achieve this. Um, Mavis, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, we're going to just home in, I think, on the inclusive um, side of uh, the objectives. I think this is super interesting and quite new, I would say. I haven't seen this as an explicit kind of high-level um, objective um, from many DFIs. So I think you might be one of the firsts, Paddy. Um, but also, just you know, we did this review, you probably know, a while ago on kind of the impact of DFI investment. And we actually found we didn't know a lot about the distributional impact of, of DFI investment. And you said yourself, there may be some better uh, approaches um, to kind of tackle some of this issue, but that you, where these opportunities um, exist, you would obviously seek them out. So, so Mavis, kind of how well do the focus areas, which, which Paddy, the sectors that he kind of outlined, fit from your perspective in terms of tackling this, this agenda? Thank you, Sam. So, um, and thank you to ODI for inviting us um, to this conversation. So I'd like to begin by commending Paddy um, and his team on the analysis um, they have done. And I really welcome the focus on increased productivity, sustainability and inclusiveness. And I think they are critical issues that governments on the continent are really trying to navigate and grapple with as they think through their built forward plans post COVID, especially at a time when they are navigating very tight fiscal spaces and also rightly concerned about the time um, it's going to take for them to build um, back their economies. And this is something that, as I said, we are encouraging governments to look at, really asking them to think about long-term transformative growth. How do you lay the foundations for long-term transformative growth? How do you ensure that the growth that you are investing in, you know, enables you to diversify your economies so that you can withstand shocks, enhance your um, productivity and, and, you know, diversify your export base, ensure you enable your you know, you are able to take advantage of technology and in all of this contributing to improved human well-being. So I think the what CDC has laid out is at the heart of what we are all encouraging governments to look at as part of their building forward better plans. Um, you know, I also think the focus on manufacturing services, agricultural, urban, informal economy, digital economy are all critical areas that we know are key to growth on the continent. So I don't disagree with any of them. I mean, some of the things that we would like to see unpacked further is when CDC says it's going to focus on agriculture, what does that actually mean? For us, it, it you know, you have to have climate smart agriculture. You've got to think about agribusinesses. We don't, we are not seeing enough DFI investment in agri-tech. And agri-tech is a critical growth area and a, an area for real employment generation for the continent. If you're going to go into some of these areas, you've got to really think about risk insurance and the importance of light manufacturing. There were two areas that you did not flag, but I know are in your past strategies. So the whole area of transportation and logistics is a critical area if we are going to see inclusive um, inclusivity in your investment. And also when you're thinking about energy, as both uh, Mohan and um, Anita has said, renewable energy is really important. One area that I 
felt did not come out strongly, Paddy, in the presentation is the extent to which you're going to go into small and medium enterprises. I mean, these are the largest generator of jobs. They are starving of finance, as you said in your in your paper. You know, in Ghana, we know that, you know, we have 90,000 MSMEs registered every year and the successful medium enterprises each generate 46 jobs. So when you aggregate it, is a lot of jobs and the continent desperately needs jobs. So how, I, how are these investments really going to focus on small and medium enterprises? Secondly, you know, when you look at these areas, really think about brownfield investments where they have potential to grow and develop, have the ability to link into regional and global value chains. Um, and you really need to think about how are CDC investments facilitating African businesses to take advantage of the continental free trade area. Again, we did not see that come out strongly in the paper. And then you talked about technical assistance. We really welcome that. But that technical assistance needs to be broadened to counseling and mentoring support to MSMEs. And here you might consider partnering with organizations that are supporting SMEs to become investment ready. So these are points that um, colleagues have already spoken about. But I just want to reemphasize it because I think to get for your investments to be truly inclusive, you need to unpack the how a bit more and look at some of these elements. For me, there are three, cha you know, three challenges to achieve this. The first one is, um, you know, CDC's transition to the vision you've outlined in the paper. So between 2011 and 2019, you invested 1.7 billion in sub-Saharan Africa. 17% of this was in low-income countries and 83% was in upper and lower middle-income countries. I know that a large number of Africa's poor live in upper and lower middle-income countries, but you cannot ignore the low-income countries. When you aggregate them, they have a major impact. And But most importantly, when the low-income countries are not doing well and we see conflict, it spills over into upper and lower middle income countries. So how are you going to find that balance and in investment? Secondly, in 2017, the largest share of your investment was in the financial sector, with over 65% of this in finance, followed by utilities. Now, we looked across your numbers between 2011 and 2019, and it's a bit more balanced. But the bulk of it, 34% was in infrastructure, 20% was in construction and real estate. Then you got to manufacturing 18% and 17% in food and agriculture. You have an ambitious new area. So how is that going to happen? I think for us to really know whether your investments are inclusive, you need to be more transparent in your reporting. So we can see how your strategy is truly driving transformative growth and inclusivity on the continent. So we were looking at your past reports and I was really struggling to see, okay, to what extent is this infrastructure investment really inclusive? And to what extent is this energy investment truly inclusive? So it would be important to have that information 
to be able to be able to say yes these investments are really driving inclusivity poor people are getting access to power poor people are really benefiting in urban areas we're beginning to see a growth we're beginning to see income increases not directly but even indirectly to be able to get that data um and then I have a bit of a cheeky one, which is, does your board have the risk appetite to do the kind of investments that are required to see real investment, you know, real inclusivity? The second area is direct versus intermediation. And Amita also touched on this. Uh, you, uh, you said in your paper that you are looking increasingly at direct investment. I think you have a much stronger role to play in intermediation if you are going to realize um, inclusive investment. One is leveraging local investment, including working with local DFIs and equity funds. Your participation in these DFIs and equity funds will enhance governance, will enable you to, you know, drive the green and sustainable investments, really help them to think through productivity, all the ambitions you have. And it might also enable you to facilitate greater investments in, in the low-income economies that ha often have nascent finance sectors and are difficult for DFIs to go in. And finally, just repeating what Mohan and um, Hamita has said, which is African governments just need to create the enabling environment for this to work. It's one thing for us to all sit here and say, you've got to do ABC, but the enabling environment becomes critical. Sam, that is everything from me. Over to you. Thank you very much, Mavis. You've clearly done done your homework and, and know CDC very well. And also, I think, have articulated quite clearly, I think, some some challenges. Uh, one for some, you know, to unpack some of the, the detail, but also some of these important challenges and the, and the transition, I guess, that's going to occur, that transformation as CDC continues to to evolve, um, but also touch on this issue, I think, about okay, how do we, I think your objective is measuring impact and conceiving impact, really talking around inclusiveness, kind of the productivity and spillovers. I think there are big implications there for how you go about uh, conceptualizing, measuring and managing for impact. So without further ado, gonna open the, the floor to some questions. Um, we've had them coming online, so they're coming to me. So I've got an immediate question from um, this gentleman here in the audience. If you could introduce yourself, please. Probably doesn't need a lot of introduction. Um, and then I will uh, take a question online. Thank you very much, Sam. And um, I'm Dirk de Velde from ODI and also a professor at uh, SOAS. Uh, I thought the presentation was really good. Uh, thanks, Paddy, for the excellent presentation. And uh, the ambition is really great to see sort of on transformation, measuring spillover effects. Um, Five years ago, uh, about five years ago, um, ODI launched the five-year strategy of CDC, and it promised to develop whole sectors. And so that is sort of the transformation uh, that we'd like to see. Um, you would need to measure spillover effects. And so my question is a bit sort of thinking about your paper. If you can make it go a bit more alive in the sense of what evidence have we seen in the past five years? that CDC investments have focused on, say, the weakest link and have therefore had transformative effects. Um, or if you can't see that, and if you haven't got examples of what CDC uh, has done uh, to have transformative effects, what should it do differently? What should it then do differently? Should it target different sectors uh, differently? Um, should it focus more on spillover effects, managing the spillover effects? So just like so, some examples. Thank you, Dirk. Um, 
Paddy, do you want to briefly respond to that question? Yeah, and maybe a few words also about the uh, from, from the discussants as well. Okay. Raise some things, but do you want to take a question online before? Uh, you... I can. Yes. Um. I just I've got question. They they seem to be for you, Paddy. Um. <laughs> but maybe um. Maybe yeah. If if you um just respond to that question and then I we might get some questions in some of the other areas. Well, there's so much here. I really need to kind of, I'd need another hour to do justice to all these questions. So I'll just sort of randomly pick at things that I think uh, I can say something quickly about. So um, I'm going to start with Mohan. And um, just to point out that I think that, you know, right, it was before my time, but I think our, our thesis with power has always been, for instance, we wanted to put more time and more effort into project development. Uh, so we like to get these projects uh, going. Um, I think that DFI's, are moving more into upstream advisory. It's like CDC has always had technical assistance, but I think we could go further into um, uh, uh, working upstream to create more opportunities. So that could be good. But I wanted to say something about. So we have financial parameters. We have to we have to get our money back. And um, some of the things that you might want to do uh, in power in, in Africa might require more concessional capital. Uh, so there is. I mean, we've just come out of. Glasgow and uh, I haven't I can't pretend that I've managed to digest everything that was said about new funds uh, but I, I think that this making more uh, really concessional capital grant capital even available for DFIs to work with to do more pioneering investments in power is something that we're going to um, need to see happen um, I mean I've got to do a bit of a kind of a kind of corporate bragging I guess because I've got to talk about people have talked about our equity uh, appetite but we also do things uh, like which I don't believe other DFIs do, which was we'll even do startups, uh, wholly owned um, subsidiaries, uh, and and one of those was uh, in India, which I hope you're familiar with, uh, uh, Namita called uh, Ayana, which was uh, set up to uh, originally uh, push into the uh, lower income um, states that were that were being neglected, and that's now got to a point where rather than us putting more of our own money into that vehicle, uh, we are now raising money from, well, that business is now raising money from uh, other places. So that's an example of sort of this mobilization story coming. And, and a place like India, I mean, I remember we did, we looked at the renewables market and I think, you know, you might think, well, India, huge economy doing really well. Uh, they don't need any money for uh, renewables. And then you actually look at how much money they, you know, like all these, renewable plans are going to are going to cost and then you go down the list of which banks seem to be actively funding them and, and like where this is what the supply of capital looks like and you've still got an enormous gap so that i mean there really is ton i mean we don't i mean what additionality in in in, in renewables I, I mean i think we can be uh there's a great need uh for capital there for sure um i don't know what else i should talk to you about I mean, mavis i mean like the 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 the, the questions you raise about SMEs and intermediaries, and then also the, the share of our portfolio, which goes into the financial sector, I think those are all part of the same uh, answer. I mean, I think when people look at our balance sheet, they go like, why, why is CDC investing in, uh, in um, you know, banks? Well, it's because we want to reach SMEs. I mean, that, that, is, that is one of our primary uh, routes to them. Um, and I think that some of the upstream work uh, I was just referring to might be part of what you were talking about with mentoring uh, and that kind of thing. That's something that we that we haven't uh, previously done a lot of. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, you mentioned that like uh, low income countries and low middle income countries and how much we invest in each. I mean, 
I, I don't need to tell you this, but I mean, countries like Nigeria, they might be a lower middle income country, but they are also, I think, going to be the, the, uh, the single country home to the largest number of, of people living in extreme poverty um, in the world. So sometimes when we get criticized for investing too much in Nigeria, I'm always thinking, oh, I'd like us to invest more uh, in Nigeria. And, and also uh, lower income countries, um, I think this is just a coincidence. Well, maybe it isn't a coincidence. Uh, are quite often small countries in terms of their population, and some of these uh, lower middle-income countries are large uh, countries in terms of population. So, if you think about um, uh, the investment opportunities being roughly proportionate to the size of GDP, then I think it makes more sense to, when you look at where we invest, to sort of normalize. Like, are we investing more as a percentage of GDP in low-income countries than we are in lower-middle-income countries? Is I think the is the is the better test. And I, I think I think last time I looked at the numbers, we are. I wish I'd rehearsed that um, before coming here. Now, the uh, the spillover effects and the inclusivity of an infrastructure investment, a grid-scale power generation, for instance, that's a genuinely hard question to answer, and it's not the kind of thing we can report. I mean, you can't just sort of ask the company to tell us who, who's benefiting from this uh, power you've, you've put onto the grid, um, particularly as the impact chain there goes into businesses, hiring people, creating jobs, lowering prices. It's a, it's a complicated uh, chain, but you can look to academic um, research uh, and get, um, I think that CDC was one of the earliest investors into the Ugandan um, distribution uh, company. Uh, and uh, I recently saw a great paper that used uh, machine learning and satellites and uh, all this kind of stuff to show that the extension of the grid uh, didn't have it previously had a, a marked um, impact on uh, poverty reduction and and and, and, uh, uh, and that's so, so that's kind of supportive of uh, what we do, but it's not the kind of thing that we're going to be able to sort of put in our annual reports every year. So I think that maybe I should um, maybe I should. Uh, beg our, uh, our shareholder for more money for research and evaluation so we can uh, fund uh, these terrifically sort of interesting studies. Um, and Dirk, well, I mean, in a way, you could say that the, the, the change in this strategy is to think a bit more about the forward effects of investments and spillovers. And, and previously, our last strategy, it was still quite looking at the jobs involved in, 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 in producing things and not so much uh, the forward effects. But, I mean, I think that investing in the financial sector is an economic enabler. If you're getting credit at scale to firms that couldn't get credit, I think that investments in power are, are, in, are, are examples of these things with forward linkages. I mean, I think we've done some fertilizer investments, I believe, but that's the kind of um, thing that, you know, again, we could be uh, continuing to look at. I mean, and I know that you're a great advocate of investment in, in, in manufacturing. Uh, I think we all want to do more there. I think that sometimes maybe the additionality screen and the ticket size uh, screen can be a problem with us in manufacturing because maybe you've got a bit of a dilemma where the really big manufacturers don't necessarily need our help. And if, we, if it's not big, it's harder for us to do. So I think that maybe that's part of the reason why uh, manufacturing could be, uh, um, well, well, it's historically proven tricky for us. Um, I'd better stop this. I've got I've got about a dozen questions written down here, but I've got to stop. So I'm just I'm just to be balanced. I've just got a, a couple of questions yeah. online, and then I can see some hands up in in the audience. So Paddy, this is from um, Jurgen of Vermulen from FMO. He says uh, the three pillars outlined in CDC strategy align strongly with SDG eight. Uh, was there a deliberate link to this SDG, 
or on purpose no mention of the SDGs yet in your particular in your analysis? So I think on purpose no mention yet because these three things. I mean, I I mean I, I see the connection with SDG eight. I hope I can remember which one it is. But I mean, I, you could sort of see that this productivity, these three dimensions are, are kind of there in a lot of the SDGs. When, you, when we announce our strategy and we start talking about how we're going to measure our progress and our impact scoring, uh, you're going to see that part of our system is going to be sort of assigning investments against different development needs. And those development needs will be SDG uh, connected. So there is going to be an integration with the SDGs once you get into the weeds of how we're going to implement the strategy. But um, okay. I'm not there yet. Yeah, SDGA, Sustainable and Inclusive Growth. Yeah. So <laughs> Uh, just, uh, I will just ask uh, just another one, just uh, from someone online. A question for Mohan, an anonymous question, Mohan. So this is, what role can DFIs play in context of fiscal consolidation and budget cuts to service delivery and thus lowered quality of living? For example, in South Africa's case with high unemployment, would competition between industries ensure more jobs or would it lower the floor of wages with such a high availability of job seekers? And how can DFI support the long-term ability to create and sustain decent jobs? Gosh, that's a long question. Did you get yeah. it wrong? <laughs> it is quite long. I'm, and, and obviously, I'm not an expert on, on all the, the different sub-elements there. But I think the, the one part that I can speak to is around this, this question of the fiscal in South Africa now, you know, the debt-to-GDP levels are about 70%. Uh, which is quite high given the cost of borrowing in South Africa, right? Um, and and it's similarly an issue in a number of African countries, especially in Southern Africa and even East Africa. Um, and so what it and part of it was certainly in infrastructure that the mechanism that was being used was countries were borrowing money to be able to invest in infrastructure. They were borrowing on balance sheet through the sovereign. Um, and it had some benefits if it was a, a good quality infrastructure. But as we know, there's been other infrastructure, certain you know you know, certain railways, certain other investments that haven't had the productive benefit that we'd like to see coming through. So the countries were taking on the extra debt, but they weren't having the, the benefits on the productivity side. So what we were trying to push for, and I think in a certain way, COVID is helping along because of the fiscal crunch, is that a lot of governments are now having to do this where they have to say, we can't just take on more debt anymore on, on the sovereign balance sheet. We have to create opportunities for private sector investment to come through. Now, it may well mean then that certain critical investments don't happen because as has been mentioned, the private sector won't invest there, but still scarce resources from the government can still go to those. Meanwhile, you're then opening up other more productive areas where the private sector can invest and they'll only invest if they can be repaid, right? So, you know, in that sense, at least from, an, uh, from a financial basis, you know, it is productive assets that are coming in um, and that is putting less of a strain, you know, directly on, on the sovereign balance sheet and if over time, then the government's able to capture the tax revenues as a portion of, of that investment, you know, then, then that does help. So I think that's a way where, you know, the support that we can put as DFIs to, to have private sector investment, you know, into areas like infrastructure will help, um, you know, manage this kind of constraint that's coming through from, from the, 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 the fiscus. Okay, thank you. I think there's a question, uh, Amy, and then Deepak. Maybe we'll take, take, take a couple of questions from the floor, please. Great. Well, I'll try and be quick then. Um, 
I mean, I think one of the one of the challenges we also CDC is great, and it sort of opens you up to the criticism: do more, do better, do it faster, all of those sorts of things. I do wonder, given the size and scale of sort of increased UK investment in CDC, like at what point do we cross a is it still our best buy line? And I mean, know we've sort of had this question before. It's an unfair one to ask CDC. Maybe it's a broader question to the panel. But I guess what I'm wondering is, I feel like you're shifting from a focus more solely on jobs to this sort of raise the consumption floor question. But we also know the consumption floor has stayed pretty static over recent years, probably the last 10 or 15 years, if we're being fair. So if we're not sort of getting that investment, and maybe this sort of goes to... Um, Mavis's point about if we're not investing in those sort of worst places and genuinely lifting that up, what are we kind of getting out of that? And is it the right sort of balance of investment? Um, I guess it's kind of, yeah, Dirk's question a little bit like, how do we shift the needle? Where is it that we're actually getting that additional impact if CDC is not quite set up to work in low income countries or the very poorest countries or reach the very poorest people? And in the context of what we're facing in the pandemic, I find that that trade off has become much more acute. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll take those two questions then, and then that thank question. you, uh, Andy Hinsley, FCDO. Uh, so I really like the three focus areas. I guess the question is: Are they pillars or are they a, a Venn diagram? And are you aiming at the intersections? Uh, how do you think about the, the trade-offs between those areas? So perhaps a couple, couple of examples. Um, if we think that export-focused manufacturing is getting a lot less job-intensive in in lower-income countries, uh, does that make it a less att attractive place to invest, or should we be doing it anyway and just have separate investments focused at, at um, creating labour demand? Um, and then we know, you know, from environmental Kuznetsko-type theories, that industrialization tends to lead to a process of environmental degradation followed by improvements after that is that something we just kind of ride the curve of or do you kind of go in immediately at um at areas that can hit both the productive and sustainable type areas thank you and one last question at the back of the room thank you great question for me to follow on from ipec Genso from the climate and sustainability team here at odi um you might know what's coming um so from Glasgow, we've seen that policy and flows of finance are always one step behind where science is. And, you know, you spoke of risk, everyone spoke of risk. We know what the biggest risk is, right? So um, do you think it's time for CDC to be very bold and simply end all financing for fossil fuel investments? Um, because, you know, Mohan, Amita, Mavis, everyone mentioned, and you yourself, the, the renewables gap um, and, you know, balancing all the different uh, pillars or Venn diagram components um, is a time to be really bold and make the commitment. You know, the UK has made a commitment to end international financing now being followed by many other countries. Um, but CDC still continues to support fossil fuels so far, understandably, for other reasons around energy access, etc. But science also shows that, um, you know, gas is not really a bridge fuel and we need to only save those for those very exceptional circumstances around, you know, emergency, um, etc. Um, but generally, as a rule, do you think in operationali operationalizing the plan, that could be a good commitment for CDC? Thanks. So you've got three questions there. I just thought maybe uh, just bring in Namita, uh, kind of your perspective, maybe perhaps just on this last question around DFI financing and, uh, if you like, fossil fuels and 
I, I think it speaks to some issues around just transition. I expect you might have a view on, on this. They would bring bring in your perspective from from the country, and then hand over to Paddy. And then I think we need we need to wrap up. Um, and Mavis, I'll, I don't I haven't forgotten about you. I'll bring I'll bring you in as well. Um, perhaps after Paddy's spoken. So maybe uh, Namita, would you like just to some quick reflections on this issue around DFI financing, uh, if you like, of um, fossil fuels? Yeah, thank, thanks. Um, thanks, Sam, for having, I mean, thanks for the question, the, the colleague from ODI. And uh, see, I mean, uh, you know, after COP, we've also seen how, uh, you know, there are countries like India, US or China really, uh, you know, uh, uh, pitched for the phase down rather than the phase out as far as fossil fuels are concerned. And I, I think sitting in an emerging market or sitting in India, uh, I believe that, you know, there has to be a balance in uh, how finance is flowing towards, um, you know, these areas like fossil fuel. So um, I, I really don't know if we can, if, if, if there is a phase even for 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 a uh, for an institution like CDC to look at how they can phase slow gradually the investments that they have made or they are already making because drastic steps are not something uh, that are going to be uh, going to be useful. On the other hand, uh, there is a huge opportunity for renewable energy, uh, as I mentioned, across um, you know markets. And uh, the, but the approach has to be uh, in a way balanced, if I may, if I may point out. So I really, I mean, sitting here, I really don't know if we could uh, just go out. I mean, I, I know it sounds, uh, you know, when we talk about clean coal, uh, for example, for India, it's good. Um, maybe moving to clean coal to to start with, and and maybe in some of the developed markets, that's not something that uh, finances would like to would like to uh, look at. Uh, I think a, a gradual kind of an approach is something uh, that um, that that we would we would really need to look at. And you know, I take your point on you know uh, that uh, policy and uh, finance is uh, a step um, uh, behind science and like for businesses or for the finance community we have science based targets I, I think we need to move uh, you know dfi's strategy also to be linked to sb sbt uh, kind of an approach and then look at what is the what are the priority markets because ultimately you're linking that uh, to the uh, the larger strategy that you would want to uh, want to um, uh, you know develop and uh, show uh, show results on right show the impact on uh, so how do you say because coal based economy today you know india has almost what 52% generation i mean that is also creating jobs and that is also um, uh, you know providing livelihood security and we need to look at a transition uh, which is just so so it can't be a drastic uh, um, uh, you know kind of a kind of a measure but it would need to be a gradual strategy working with those governments to look at how they want to um, plan their action against the commitments that they have taken. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. I'm a bit mindful of time. Have you got maybe five more minutes, Paddy? And yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, Mohan. Yeah. Um, look, I think, you know, my own view is, you know, those kinds of calls aren't helpful in, in promoting economic development, especially in emerging countries, right? Um, you know, the reality is, if you think about development banks, our focus is around, you know, clean, sustainable energy. That's where the funding is actually going. There are, in some cases, where it does make sense, you know, to, to have a bit of a mix, to have some 
you know, some need for, for, for instance, natural gas, as an example. Um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a strong internal discussion we've been having at the DBSA as well. In fact, you know, the Green Climate Fund, which we belong to, uh, delayed our accreditation, reaccreditation, because, you know, they saw that we were funding some fossil fuel projects. Um, and, and, you know, that was being blocked by Sweden and, and by France. I guess France has a lot of nuclear power plants, so, you know, they're okay. They're connected to Germany and Poland that's burning lignite and whatever else, you know, that they tend to burn. So it's, you know, it's easy for them. Uh, you know, a lot of the country, and I think in the case of South Africa, as an example, we can invest a lot in renewable energy because we already have a lot of baseload energy. And there's already a plan in place to significantly decommission the existing coal-fired power plants and then to invest in renewables. So that's something that's possible even in a South Africa. But if you take a country like Madagascar, which is an island, it's not connected to the Southern African power pool. You know, it's a country of 25 million people and the, the generation capacity is 500 megawatts. So, you know, that's 1% of the generation capacity of South Africa with half the population, you know, to say, um, and they're already burning heavy fuel oil for generating power. So it may well be that, you know, switching to natural gas until storage prices drop to a case, you know, with battery storage, that, that you can go towards battery storage. So I think this is why I'm saying it's not always that helpful because, you know, you have to have that broader view. But the reality is, you know, it's also not, what, from, from my perspective, it's not worthwhile getting down in that debate because it's actually a very small percent of the investments, you know, that we make as, as development finance institutions. You know, the majority of the investments are in renewables, you know, in transmission grids, in, you know, transport and logistics, you know, those other elements, you know, social housing, education, healthcare. So even in each of those, you can look to say, you know, how do we make buildings more green? But the fact that you're putting up a building, it's going to have a negative impact on the environment if you think about it that way, to say anytime, you know, you use concrete and steel and all of these things, you know, you know those items consume, you know, the production of those items, you know, do, do consume, um, uh, I guess, greenhouse gas. So it's, but we need to develop it. I think, you know, it's about developing, you know, in a sustainable manner. And, and, and that's how we look at, at, at making balanced investment choices. Excellent. I thought, I thought it'd be useful just to hear some perspectives that's yeah. a you know a challenging challenging issue uh, so maybe maybe paddy if um if you just reflect on some of those questions that have been put so amy i mean the consumption floor is the uh, the level of consumption the absolute minimum we observe in society so that's not uh, below e extreme poverty and um uh, and reaching people like those directly uh, would be very tough for a dfi and i think that uh, donor governments have have better tools than us to do it but uh, in a recent paper we looked at correlations in the data, and what we found is that for every percentage increase in the rate of private uh, investment in an economy, um, on average, there's a 2% increase in the rate of decline in the extreme poverty headcount. So there is a, there is a, a statistical association between higher private investment and uh, a faster extreme poverty reduction um, Obviously, correlation and causation is a bit of a messy thing, uh, but, but you know there is a reason to think that there are kind of spillover effects uh, from uh, growth onto extreme poverty. Um, uh, Trade-offs, Andy. Um, so, in a way, a scoring system is a way of embodying your view on on these trade-offs. And that when we do, let's say, you are looking at um, you know you, the environmental Kuznets curve, uh, a manufacturing plant that's carbon intensive or let's say something like that that's going to kind of not be good in our scoring system and then the other bits better be good otherwise it's not going to get a high score and we can't do too many low scoring investments so we're kind of this is a way of i 
scoring investments and thinking about these three dimensions is a way of making these trade-offs visible and managing them. So I think that's what I will say on that. So on um, gas, so uh, our policy, in case anybody doesn't know it, um, uh, as is in the Paris Agreement, the uh, emissions of uh, LDCs are permitted to, to rise a bit more before they fall as they need for their development needs. Uh, we have a policy of only doing um, gas uh, if it is deemed to be Paris aligned under exceptional circumstances. You can go online and search for our gas guidance note and that will tell you uh, when we do that. So let's think about those exceptional circumstances. Now, I'm not a power expert, so all I can do is tell you it as I understand it, okay? So some parts of the power system need to be able to deliver power, not just 24 hours a day, but in those periods uh, where the sun hasn't shone for a while and the wind hasn't blown. And as I understand things, the uh, price for trying to put that together with renewables and storage is something like, I mean, you can't say anything too general, but something like two or three times more expensive uh, than it would be for a, an indigenous gas plant right now. So you're asking an African government to spend two or three times more on uh, this important part of delivering reliable and affordable power. I think that anybody who is, uh, thinks of themselves as an anti-poverty campaigner ought to think pretty carefully about uh, a policy that increases the prices of uh, power in the poorest countries uh, in the world. I think that the ed fees are committed to um, phase out gas power in 2030. Um, my personal view is that it is time for, let's say, European uh, governments to stop investing in uh, fossils, and then maybe they can start making it harder for uh, low-income countries uh, to do that. And I think the right time for us to stop investing in gas is when it's no longer needed. And um, there's a lot we can all do to uh, bring that closer, that point in time closer. And there are investments that need to be made uh, in transmission and distribution. Uh, we need to see those pioneering investments in energy storage uh, starting to make themselves shown on the African continent and so that the entire uh, system can learn how to manage high levels of uh, variable renewable energy sooner. So, I mean, as Mohan said, it gets a lot of attention, but I mean, in terms of the carbon emissions that we're talking about from a few 500 megawatt gas power plants on the African continent, I mean, it's it's quite obscene, really, that in a way we're talking about that when there is such enormous emissions uh, in the rest of the world. So um, I think that's enough on that topic. Okay, um, Mavis, I'm just mindful you're, you're there in, in Accra. Um, I'm just wondering, um, Paddy kind of responded a little bit to some of the challenges you raised. Do you have any any further comment you'd like to um, add just before we close the event? I just had two quick comments for Paddy. Paddy, unfortunately, when you use the word inclusive, in your strategy, you take away the choice of whether a country has 25 million or it has 200 million. So just something for CDC to think about. Um, and in asset, we always say that when Nigeria sneezes, it affects Niger. But when Niger gets upset, it has a knock-on effect that really throws Nigeria off balance. So just 
think about the interconnectivity of those countries and their impacts of it on each other and also the fact that a poor person is a poor person. And the second point on it would be really wonderful to see the increase in SME investments from your finance investments given the numbers we are seeing are not seeing an increase in those sectors. So maybe targeting um, SMEs will get you closer to that inclusivity target. That was it. Thank you. Thank you, Mavis. Namita, do you want any quick closing observations, comments, but quick? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I, I just wanted to, you know, because we were on the topic of power and there is, uh, there's so much spoken about it. I just had one comment for Paddy and uh, that is really, you know, we've seen how uh, you know, International Solar Alliance has been instrumental in bringing together 122 countries for cooperation among the uh, solar resource rich countries, right? So I think the opportunity here is for all DFIs and, you know, CDC has the opportunity to take the lead uh, to collaborate, to harness a kind of a collective potential and draw on the ethos of one sun, one world, one grid to a one agenda, one world, one development for uh, you know, accelerating the overall global sustainable finance and climate transition. So I thought that was that was a very uh, interesting point to look at. Thank you. Namita and Mohan, maybe a few, just a, some reflections or last quick quick reflections, observations, comments. No, I mean I think in general, you know, what we've heard so far, you know, really aligns with what the DBSA is seeing and and trying to do on the African continent. So it's it's very positive, and I think the focus on you know productivity and 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 helping to grow the economies is one that's very aligned to what African you know, governments and, and, and entities are trying to do because we understand only by growing our economies you know, can we create enough you know, wealth to, to, to you know, help solve a number of the social problems that are, that are there on the continent. Okay, well, we've run over time, but I just wanted to thank everybody um, online and in the room for um, your active engagement and, and questions. And also my thanks to the panelists, uh, Namita and Mavis, participating virtually and Mohan and Paddy. Thanks for, for coming here today. Um, we've run out of time, so I won't summarize everything. This will be made available, um, I think in a couple of days online. So if people want to um, share it with colleagues who you think might be interested, but also if you've enjoyed today's event, uh, we have a, another event uh, coming up on the 30th of November, which is the role of China in the multilateral development bank. So please, uh, register and tune in for that. And thank you, everybody. Thank you.